0: Hello and welcome to Kane and Sound of Play 136. Every Wednesday in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favorite pieces from the mini video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. My name is Ryan Heyman, and joining me today is one of my close personal friends ever since I was in high school. Uh, this is my, uh, my my buddy, Jeff Prawl. Hey, how's it going, Ryan?
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, you're kind of a a random choice to bring on to the show <laughs> because you don't really have um, a, a lot of experience in uh, in video games uh, you're not like in the industry necessarily that's right and you have terrible taste in music
2: right but, <laughs> yeah <so. laughs>
1: I well i feel very highly qualified for this and i've just been waiting for this call <laughs> for a long time now so yeah yeah this is this is really good
0: i'm interested because you work in the film industry you're living down in hollywood california right now just just an easy, easy walk away from the Walk of Fame, mm-hmm. from the uh, esteemed Donald Trump star. Which yes. I'm sure it's just the the pride of your hometown now.
1: Yeah, it is <laughs> so much so that they like to make the little uh, monuments to it and that kind of thing. I don't know. <laughs> Did you see that on the the news last year where they built a they built a like a a, a wall around it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> now is that to keep people from vandalizing it, or is that like a play up on the wall that? He wants to build
1: that one was a play up on the wall, uh, okay. <laughs> by, by somebody local there. Um, and then, so like I drove by that on my way to work in the morning, uh, mm-hmm. that morning, but then by that <laughs> evening it was gone. Um, and then there was the other time that the dude came through with like the pickaxe, I think, and like just smashed the star. Yeah. So yeah, last year, 2017 was a good year for the star.
0: Well, anyways, that law lasted longer than, uh, most of his staff members. So it's true. It's not this kind of show though. (laughs) We're here to cheer everybody up, not drag everyone else into the, uh, endless hellscape that we're all trying to avoid by listening to podcasts.
1: Yeah, you said this is a political show, right? We talk about Yes, that's right. Politics we are and... the
0: hard hitting. Yeah. You represent the far, far right wing and, and... <laughs> Uh, No, anyways, um, yeah, I wanted to. uh, We're going to spend kind of these interim periods talking about uh, some of the work that you've done and some of the experience that you've had, not only working in the uh, film industry in uh, producing and directing, uh, but also in composing some of your own music for some of your uh, your old projects that uh, I was privy to while you were in um, high school and college. So there's plenty to come, but. First of all, I wanted to get some more information on this piece of music that we came into the show with. This is a familiar piece of music to me because the two of us, uh, growing up played a ton of the Donkey Kong country series together. And that is where this particular song is from. Yeah. So why don't you introduce this one? What makes it stand out to you? What kind of memories does it invoke? Like, why is it that you chose this piece of music over anything in that, uh, that very famous soundtrack.
1: This one always just stood out to me at this particular level um, was the one that was set up in the, um, like in the treetops on like the, the little platforms and whatnot. Mm. Um, the and ones that look like the uh, Ewok village. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. So okay. That was always one of my absolute favorite levels. It was one of my favorite scores because it just, it, i always felt like it just um, fit with the look of it. And I always wanted to go there. I just wanted that to be real and it probably <laughs> yeah. has something to do with the fact that it looked like the Ewoks, you know, village, uh-huh. but it's basically like the Ewoks village and you're jumping around and the music's dope. And so there's just, I don't know, it's just a lot of good memories from playing that. Plus it's a super fun level
0: too. I always like the Donkey Kong Country games because it feels like more of a natural world that you're a part of a world that continues to exist beyond Donkey Kong. Um, the, the Mario platformers. All feel like they are specifically constructed so that Mario can run and jump in these levels. And uh, super Mario Bros three on the NES even took that a step farther where, uh, the platforms were like literally screwed into the walls and the, uh, you know, everything was like a super hyper artificial production. Uh, whereas Donkey Kong country, you know, you were in, uh, caves and jungles and you can just kind of see when you were on the treetops, you can see the tops of the trees for, uh, miles going out and um, it it's made you feel kind of almost like small in comparison to the the world that you were a part of. And and I like this level because there were other rows of, of treetop houses that you can see in the background and they have like lights on and stuff like that. And so it makes you feel like there's activity happening here that you weren't necessarily like immediately privy to.
1: It's true. I think that's, that's, one of the biggest selling points uh, for me was always just the, the the world itself was just so fascinating, um, and it was always somewhere that you you kind of you wanted to be real, you want to go yeah. there. I don't know what you're <laughs> going to do when you go there and you find a bunch of you know talking apes or whatnot. Um, <laughs> uh, you know but we, I guess we could just watch the TV show for that
2: mm-hmm. yeah
0: that's right. that's the only time I think that they actually talked is I think in the so. TV show yeah I think so which is uh, yeah part of the um the ever-growing canon of the Donkey Kong Country. I sent you that link. There's been an increased interest in the canon of the Donkey Kong Country series, as uh, people try to work out, you know, who are all the various Kongs between the arcade games and the country series, mm-hmm. and what happened in between those times. What happened to Donkey Kong's father? Yeah, uh, because you know he's kind of an unseen force and. And there's talk of a a great Kong war between the Kongs and the Kremlings, because we see a lot of the Kremlings in uh, in wartime attire and stuff like that. So it's it's really interesting. It's definitely worth seeking out. There's some uh, it's 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 definitely ad hoc. Like there's obviously no timeline that's being like established beforehand, but people have a fun time kind of creating it afterwards. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a wild and wacky. Anyways, let's get into some more music here. Uh, this next piece of music I'm actually doing, uh, not necessarily repeat tracks today, but, uh, I'm featuring a couple tracks from show, uh, from games that I had featured just a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, these are different tracks. And so it's a fresh listening experience, but I'm afraid that I won't have, uh, much more interesting to add to them, um, uh, to the games discussion anyways, uh, beyond what I've added before. So, um. I'm going to be probably a little bit briefer on these, but this is a song from The Legend of Zelda, Triforce Heroes. That is a three-player online multiplayer Legend of Zelda game uh, featuring more kind of like smaller bite-sized puzzle dungeons instead of like wide open worlds to explore uh, that you and uh, two of your mates or just two random strangers just uh, tackle online. And uh, as I've mentioned in the past, Don't care for the game, but I really, really like the soundtrack. And what I've featured before, uh, both myself and uh, frequent contributor Andrew Brown uh, on our Legend of Zelda uh, music special back in Sound of Play 50, featured from this soundtrack before is very non-Zelda-like music. Uh, The last one that I featured, uh, Madame Corsair's Costume Shop, was very whimsical uh, kind of based on this Parisian high fashion type of uh, audio soundscape, but this one is more traditional Zelda-like. And so I'm just kind of featuring this to show both sides of that soundtrack and the the range and scope of, of that particular soundtrack. And so this is really fun. It has, again, uh, just like the rest of this soundtrack, has really great instrumentation. I like anything that features... Cello prominently. This has some uh, cello and viola in there. I don't know if it's live recordings or whether it's just really, really good synthesized instruments, Uh, but it's very upbeat, very um, adventurous, very fun. I like this one a lot. Uh, Jeff, do you have any experience with the Legend of Zelda series?
1: Hey, I couldn't have said it any better myself. I've been, you know, for years, <laughs> I've been I've been trying to figure out how to properly explain my feelings on that track and that game. And man, it's really, this is really <laughs> enlightening for me. So
0: it really, uh, really spoke for both of us there. Yeah,
1: yeah. I feel like I, you know, just you already said it all. And I'm just really, really proud of you. That's really good.
0: Okay, all right, great. <laughs> Well then, let's uh, let's go straight into Stage One, Woodlands, by Ryō Nagamatsu from The Legend of Zelda: Triforce Heroes. <laughs> So, Jeff, I want to get into some of your film experience. Obviously, we spend uh, most of our time talking about video games and the video game industry here on this podcast and on Caner Uh, But film and the film industry features a lot of similar components of the creation process, but often kind of done in a very different way. And so I'm, uh, I'm just really curious to kind of learn about the whole process. You've been uh, doing production and, and, and directing and probably all sorts of other work for the Salvation Army film team for quite a while. Is there any kind of like, what is a, like a brief description on like what a day in the life of a film producer, what does that look like?
1: Oh man. Well, uh, it I mean, it's, it's, it varies significantly depending on from person to person and from project to project. I mean, it's, it's very, very different. I think, um, you know, I can speak about, uh, you know, some of the the different projects we do. We do a lot of documentary work um, mm-hmm. and those are always very interesting um, because you get to do a lot of traveling for that, uh, which, which is really fun to be able to go see a lot of different, you know, places and um, really been learning about the Salvation Army uh, as an organization as I've worked with them more and more over the years um and kind of get to see the unique way they try to to help people in the local communities and that kind of thing. So a lot of times we'll take a, a small team of us, there's usually four or five of us, um, and we'll travel out to wherever the 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 story is. Usually a lot of times there's stories of people who've gone through addiction recovery or, you know, things like that. Um and then we'll spend anywhere from three to five days out there filming. Um, and then come back and and put it together. So that's kind of the, you know, the, the most of what I've been doing is documentary work. But at the moment, we're, you know, we're kind of moving more into uh, like scripted kind of stuff. So we shot a couple mm-hmm. of short films last year, uh, one in England and one in Mexico, and we shot a music video in Iceland. So it's bit by bit kind of starting to move more that direction
0: now i know for your mexico shoot you used local actors for that yeah yeah that was a boy that was
1: an incredible experience so we shot in december in a little uh colonia outside of tijuana called el nino this is tiny little village
0: and for those of you who don't speak spanish that means the nino <laughs> <laughs> use the classic uh, chris farley snl bit not taking credit for it <laughs>
1: Well, hey, I wouldn't have known. So you you probably should have just taken credit for it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we shot there, and it was a um, all Spanish language script, all Mexican mm-hmm. cast, um, all from Mexico. Um, and were
0: you directing that one?
1: Yeah, so I did direct it, and um, that was quite a challenge because uh, my Spanish is subpar.
0: I can attest to this. (laughs) We've been to Mexico together. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So my my Spanish is subpar. So I had to, um, you know, it was quite an interesting challenge trying to figure out how to, you know, how to work uh, through that to work with the actors and that kind of thing. So it's a lot of work with, you know, translators, um, but also, you know, it was a very stripped down kind of script, which helped a lot. It was not a super dialogue driven script, but it was just a fascinating experience to film down there.
0: And also working with uh, animals in that uh-huh. shoot as well. Yeah,
1: yeah they, they always say sort of, I guess the saying is that, um, you know, kids and animals are the two things you want to avoid if you want to have a, a cost effective and quick. And easy you were working with
0: a goat, a young goat. And so really you got both. And a young kid
1: too. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, we, we true. had both. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we had both a, a goat and a, and a, a 12 year old uh, boy as our star. Um, so that was quite the experience. He was awesome. He, our, our, our boy was awesome, but we just, you know, it's hard when you're shooting you're 12 years old and you shoot five days in a row. And you know, that's, yeah. that's hard by the end of it. He was pretty worn out. And then our goat was just, The the goat was just the worst the whole time. So (laughs) (laughs) the the goat doesn't, he doesn't get any excuses (laughs) other than just, you know, being an animal. I guess that's an excuse. That's a pretty good excuse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: We probably (laughs) shouldn't have expected so much. (laughs) Which is not cooperating, not getting in the shot when you wanted him to be.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. Just, just so much. And then just, you know, like peeing and pooping everywhere, like everywhere you brought him, like every time we had to shoot inside, they just... Would pee and poop everywhere. Anytime you had to move them, they'd pee and poop, and it's just. And then they'd be kind of the same thing other. that I hear
0: a lot of uh, um, actors who worked with Orson Welles would complain <laughs> about the same thing. So you know, yeah, I mean, definitely all the way be, up the chain. Really, this yeah, is good practice that you're getting.
1: It was not a you know, obviously everyone you know the story kind of falls flat or down here because everyone's like, oh yeah, that's pretty normal. Like you know, <laughs> most of our talent does the same thing. So
0: <laughs> right. Anyways, let's we'll get back to some film chat in a bit, but um, let's get to another piece of music. This is a request from the forum. This comes from Codemonkey, who says, Being a fan of the SNES Mini's menu theme music, I was intrigued to find out what the NES Mini menu theme music sounded like. Having never seen the machine in, in the wild, due to it being rarer than a hen's teeth, An interesting expression there. I have no idea how the games play on it, but I did find the menu theme music on YouTube, and I was pleasantly surprised that it too is a very humble track. Hope you enjoy this track as much as I have in all of its 8-bit loveliness. Yes, a few weeks back we featured the uh, main menu theme from the Super NES Classic Edition, which is a miniature SNES machine uh, just kind of running a probably a pretty simple, like a Raspberry Pi setup inside with a emulator that had uh, 21 uh, SNES games on it. And uh, they also put out, uh, Nintendo also put out an NES Mini or a Famicom Mini, depending on your region, machine that featured 30 NES games, uh, obviously easily hackable to put 700 nes games as many people did but uh yeah it was all kind of wrapped in this really kind of loving presentation of uh this this menu where you can select the games you can uh, save your state uh in in these various games you could just scroll through the menu and then screensavers would come on if you leave the system idle for too long. And, and it, it plays this this music. And um, I, I don't have an NES Classic either. Uh, even though I work at Nintendo, I could probably come up with one. But, you know, just never really been uh, inspired to drop the money on it. But um, this music is interesting because playing as a piece of background music on a menu, it's actually like a fairly complex piece of music like it really takes you on a journey it's far more uh, there's far more to it than i would expect something that's like a main menu theme to be you know traditionally if there is a main menu theme in a video game video game console it's always very like spacey and mellow and almost not even there in the first place but this song is really uh it really takes you on a journey and there's fun little easter eggs uh, sound effects from the super mario games and it's just it's a it's a fun tune I like this one a lot, and it definitely kind of evokes that NES era, uh, more the kind of late NES era. But uh, yeah, it's it's got some of that same compositional style, and uh, yeah, it's a fun track. We don't know who composed it, but uh, it's somebody in the Nintendo stable. This is simply called Menu from the NES Classic. <laughs> game industry becomes more cinematic as we incorporate more uh, live action motion capture and um, you know live uh, high talent voice uh, talent coming into the uh, studios to record like we we have a lot of the same techniques that uh, film uses now to create our games essentially but I think the the one piece of films that video games hasn't really stepped on yet is, like actual on-location shooting, and uh, scouting out locations and stuff like that. Of course, there will be locations in video games, but usually if you're location scouting, that'll be uh, taking photographs of a place that you want to digitally recreate instead of actually filming or uh, recording any of your dialogue or doing any of the programming at the location itself. So... I know that you in college and uh presumably also in your current job did a lot of location scouting and finding locations. So what is that whole process like? Cause that sounds, as somebody who's not in the industry, that sounds like way overwhelming. <laughs> uh
1: it actually super is. And I uh I hate location scouting. Um but <laughs> but but it's true. It's it can be an extraordinarily taxing thing especially when you're looking for a very specific location and just trying like every which way uh to to find something that works for it and to find something that uh that is affordable too because that's the thing like especially in Los Angeles is really for the most part anything that you want to find you can find um but you you have to pay for it so the trick is always finding something that will work um that is, uh, affordable or with somebody that can, uh, you know, give you a discount since you're not a, uh, you know, a big feature production. Yeah. But some of the funnest ones are, are, um, when we uh, do these international shoots and I get a chance to kind of go over there ahead of time. Uh, like in England, I went over there and on a separate trip, uh, and we did a lot of scouting with, uh, with the local crew members, local producers there. Um, and it's, it's really cool to see a, a script then transform once you have the locations for it. Like it just transforms in your head from words on a page with these, you know, pictures mm. that that they've sent me of, you know, here's what the locations look like and that kind of thing. But then you go there and there's just no, not enough pictures that can give you the full context of what it's like being there. Mm, yeah. And the hope is then that as we shoot it, as we fall in love with these locations, that we shoot it in a way that the audience, um, can, can understand that too. That's the hope.
0: Back in college, I remember you had at least one instance of having to location scout for a sci-fi production.
1: I think it was like sort of like the the senior classes thesis film and it was all set on a spaceship. So it was this very ambitious kind of student film. Yeah. So my job was the locations guy was to find a uh, spaceship set. It seemed Impossible! Like, how are you going to do that and find one that we can <laughs> yeah. use and stuff like that? Um, so, after a long time of searching, though, we've re- we really totally lucked out. Was able to find this this fully built spaceship set at this place. I think it's called Laurel Canyon Studios, um, up in up in Burbank, I think. But it was just it was just rad. It fit everything, and um, I'd have to look it up. But it's definitely been in uh, you know commercials that we've seen before. Uh, not the thing that we did, but the this, the set itself. Mm -hmm. um, has been in a lot of like, uh, a lot of really cool projects, a lot of projects that were way cooler than what we did. Oh, presumably. Yeah. I mean,
0: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. So where do you start if you have an assignment like that? Like you need to find a very specific type of set. Like what do you, what do you type into Google in the first place (laughs) to give you your first step in the right direction?
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, I think on that, it's just, you know, spaceship set. I did a project about a year and a half ago that was this post-apocalyptic project set in LA and just had a, needed a ton of different post-apocalyptic sort of locations. And it was just searching around a lot of it for um, things totally unconnected to the film and, you know, film sets and that kind of thing, because we were on a relatively small budget. I think it was, you know, it was under 30 grand for the budget, uh, which is, which is, pretty small for that the type of production that we were doing um so we weren't looking at you know pre-built sets or sound stages or anything like that even though they got some awesome ones it was just looking at okay what are the places in la that are actually kind of left decrepit that people actually haven't kept up with yeah and so you know one of them that we were actually really lucky able to get is there's this like
0: your apartment and
1: uh (laughs) yeah you know I went out back to the dumpster and I was like oh this is perfect Like, all oh, these um, paint
0: shades don't match at all this is going to be great this screams Mad Max to me there's yeah. just no order in this
1: world anymore that's right I mean I've got the cockroaches <laughs> in my sink and I was like oh is this perfect lots of close-ups here um, no, but there's this uh, there's this bridge in Los Angeles called the Sixth Street Bridge, um, and it's it's actually a very famous bridge that you'll see in a lot of different movies. You see it in Drive, uh, just as one example off the top of my head. But you'll see it in um, a ton of different movies. It's just it's a it's a real cool old bridge that's a lot of t- you, you know. Whenever you see a car driving on the the highway towards the city, a lot of times it's on this, this Sixth Street Bridge. Um, and at this time, they were tearing it down. They're were, they were rebuilding it with a new one oh, wow. right now. But they were tearing it down. So the, the bridge was half destroyed because they'd taken about half of it off. So we were able to get down to find our way down into the what's well, called the LA River. But it's it's basically just this giant concrete drain underneath it and we are able yeah, to film remember underneath it from uh,
0: Terminator 2 and um, Grand Same. Theft Auto 5 for our nerd audiences. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: Exactly that. So we were able to get down there and film with the, you know, the bridge half uh, torn down, um, which is, you know, just a luck of timing kind of thing. So it was, it's lots of, you know, it was lots of things like that. And there are these old prohibition tunnels uh, under City Hall uh, in downtown Los Angeles. Oh, no kidding. And so we were able to work with the city and they were they let us go down there and shoot a night. Uh, there's just these old tunnels that connect some of the government buildings downtown. And it seems to be kind of contentious what they were actually built for. But a lot of it, generally, the idea has that it has something to do with the prohibition era whether or okay. not it was actually like, you know, bootlegging or a lot of times I've heard that it had to do with transporting prisoners and not wanting to do it over ground because of the crime back in the twenties and that kind of thing. Yeah. But it's fascinating. You know, it's just this totally decrepit sort of old tunnels, concrete tunnels, and we got to film down there. So it's just kind of trying to find things and, and creatively set scenes to use those locations.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Let's talk about this next piece of music. This is another piece from a Donkey Kong Country game. And uh, unless I'm, yeah, I'm pretty confident in saying this is both of our favorites. Yeah, definitely. This one stands
1: out to me always is just that this was the, this was when, you know, when the, when you first put the cartridge in and and you turn it on and it, and it comes on, this is the first, you know, tune that, that plays. And I just always remember not, like when I was playing by myself, I would never click through this screen. I would always just kind of like let it hang <laughs> yeah. there to just listen to this, you know, this theme, and then and then go on. Um, because I just think it's it's just fascinating because it takes it in such a different direction too. Like if you were, you know, coming from the first
0: Donkey Kong country, mm, and then yeah, you absolutely. just plopped this guy in, you know, it's from Donkey Kong country too. To state for the audience.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if you play the first one and then, you know, you you put in the second one and and it's the first time you've ever heard it, like... I mean, what a what a what a crazy transition! I was too young to kind of be able to experience it that way, but it's just kind of fun thinking about presumably, you know, what kind of a a a change that would be.
0: Right. Of course, you were only twenty-one at the time, and so you're still (laughs) kind of a few years out from really being able to pick up on uh, musical le motifs and more kind of complex systems like that. So. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, my college education in the nineties. You know, it's
0: (laughs) (laughs) this game, Donkey Kong Country Two, takes the kind of serene jungle environment and throws that out and gives you more of a mix of uh, pirates and ghosts so to speak and, and sets you on this much darker quest and i think that this piece of music like you said it is a good real like statement of intent like it's uh, it's what greets you and it just sounds like big and scary <laughs> it's like whoa we are definitely not in the same donkey Kong country that we were before
1: yeah. It's like, uh, it's like the Imperial March. Uh, but if, yeah, yeah, you know, that's but, if perfect. The Imper- yeah but like a more famous version of like the Imperial March.
0: <laughs> that's right. If you'll crane your, your mind around and think of that weird, obscure, uh, sci-fi movie, uh, the empire strikes back. Yeah. Then, uh, maybe you can relate these two together. Of course, we all know the soundtrack to Dr. Country, Dude, Diddy's Conquest. Uh, well, yeah, let's listen to this. This is K. Rule Returns title theme composed by David Wise for Donkey Kong Country 2. So now you were talking about the LA city hall, um, before we went to our last song there. And I remember distinctly, uh, we were taking a tour around LA noir together. Uh, that was the, uh, PlayStation three game set in LA in the like forties. Right. I think it was, Yeah, um, it was kind of this old school version of LA and I was just having a lot of fun because you were like really getting into the, um, uh, not necessarily the historicity of it all, but the, the location, um, right. Cause you're so familiar with LA. I mean, you've lived there for many years now and you were kind of pointing out like, Oh, this is this building and this should actually be a couple blocks that way. And this is the street that, you know, all these things would have happened on. And we came to, uh, the LA city hall is one of the locations in that game. And, uh, you kind of pointing that out and, and it's just fun to experience these, games through the eyes of a local and you know I've had that opportunity to uh go through Infamous Second Son which is set in Seattle and we've uh we've both gone through um Grand Theft Auto 5 which is set in a more modern day LA mm-hmm. and you have a ton of fun just shooting civilians and so I don't really know <laughs> what that says about about you and your relationship with, uh, LA County, but
1: it's hard to say, I guess it's just, you know, you know, the big city changes you, I guess, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, I, I remember the, the going around GTA, um, is it GTA five? Yeah. That's in LA, yeah. And that was, it is such fun to kind of be able to see like the choices that they make of like what, which things they connect and, uh, you know, which blocks they have set up properly and then how things end up on the total opposite side of town. And I'm mm. always interested to know you know why those those choices are made like i mean obviously there's a ton of you know junk that you can just skip through like you just Mm -hmm. you know just to shrink the city but then you get i wish i could remember an example of it but you just get random things where like you'll you know they'll see this one building that's next to other buildings that are also in the game but they've moved that one you know to the Mm -hmm. south side of the city and i can't remember what one but i remember that happened a couple times and you're like i i wonder why i wonder why do you
0: think that fits into because um in these games they're kind of like, like the real city, like they're divided into not quadrants necessarily. What would you call like neighborhoods or different like, you know, sectors of the city. And so maybe like keeping a consistent visual theme, like if something fits Mm. better in one district than another, then that would make sense to maybe move it to a place where it's more kind of internally consistent.
2: Mm. Or
0: maybe if a building would be used as a, as a, kind of a landmark for one particular mission and then it makes the most sense to put that next to the freeway so that the car chase could break out while they're you know on their way out of the building Uh, because it is essentially all being um all being created to serve the central narrative Uh, but yeah it's really interesting I'm, i'm super into this kind of like recreating real places within video games Right.
1: Yeah, oh well, that makes total sense. Yeah, I like that I was like, I wonder why. And you're like, well, actually, here's why. I am I'm just uh, guessing as well, so I,
0: I have no idea.
1: Like, okay, I mean that that was a nice question, but I'm yeah, let's I'm just gonna explain to you uh, we all know cute. why. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but no, I mean no, that, no, that makes that I mean that makes a lot of sense. So I mean I'm 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 buy it. I'm sold.
0: Now I remember that we tried to find your home in Grand Theft Auto Five, but it wasn't I don't think we could find it. I think you could find like where it was supposed to be. Yeah, I think like, you can get it within a so couple close, blocks
1: radius. Exactly. Because I live so close to like the Chinese theater and that kind of thing. Yeah, so you yeah. can find that and then be like, okay, well, if you take this street up here, it should be here. Um, mm-hmm. But unfortunately, yeah, I guess they didn't, um, you know, they just didn't consider it a uh, a landmark kind of place. Uh, I I don't really know why. It just seems like it's got all the makings for kind of like a, an internationally famous um, apartment but uh, yeah. you just got
0: to get a famous movie star to crash their car into the front door that would there, there we go there we go okay I can see I always have to do the thinking for us <laughs>
1: yeah yeah <laughs> I can do that so I was gonna say I can do that but then I realized oh, I don't know any famous movie stars so no I, I can't do that
0: I think you can call up uh, you know Ro- Robbie D Robert De Niro or that's uh, tr- I forgot about him know. I forgot he's famous now he counts yeah. Charlton Heston. Is he still <laughs> alive? I don't know. Uh, you oh, know, no. who knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Anyways, let's get into another piece of music. This is a, a really interesting, really cool piece of music. This strongly reminds me of uh, David Bowie Space Oddity at the beginning there. And this is a game that's set in space. So maybe this was like an intentional type of thing. Uh, but I think more than anything, as the song develops, it sounds... A lot like a Flaming Lips song, just without the uh, lead vocal, of course. But this is called the Fondlarium, I think it is. I don't know what that means. Uh, Maybe if I actually played the game and uh, did my homework and came prepared for the show. But who has time for that, really? (laughs) Uh, This is from a game called Headlander, uh, which I have featured one piece of music from in the past, uh, just to briefly catch everybody up. It's a side-scrolling game where you play as a decapitated um, astronaut, or rather Ooh. just the head of that astronaut. And uh, I guess the head has like a rocket booster on the bottom, so you can like zoom around and, and attach your head to different bodies and use that to control things. I don't know, it's, it seems really weird. It's developed by Double Fine, published by Adult Swim, so that's a that's a combination of uh, studios that are looking for interesting, weird ideas already, so this one definitely fits. This piece of music is composed by David Gregory Earle, and I I just like it. It has a really nice sound to it. It has that kind of flaming lips type of sound, and uh, it's really pleasant. So let's listen to the Fondlarium. <sighs>
1: fondlarium is that like a it's like a like a uh place where they it's like the fondling kind of place i guess that's
0: i I guess like that's what makes the most sense if i were to just like break that word apart (laughs) but i don't know how that would fit into the story of the game you think that fondling that somebody that is only a head would be at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to fondling but unless it's about eh.
1: fondling the the headless person
0: uh, it could be yeah i guess
1: or 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 is it about the headless person fondling their head like as they hold it
0: this is getting weird
1: <laughs> but it's like a, it's like an aquarium or like a planetarium okay, but for yeah. fondling basically
0: it's like a fondling planetarium or as uh as we used to call it in high school just a regular planetarium <laughs> as this is released the Academy Awards were just this previous Sunday. We're recording them in advance of the Academy Awards. So do you have any, uh, any predictions that will either make you look probably not <laughs> that impressive or incredibly stupid in a few days time? You have nothing to gain and a lot to lose.
1: That's, that's kind of what this feels like, but that's also kind of like my <laughs> life. So I'm, I'm really down with that. Um, you know, I, uh, I just kind of fin- finally got caught up on on watching all of them and um mm. you know but it's always it's always such a um, anybody's guess I I think down to the certain to a certain point at the end I think um mm-hmm. 3 Billboards and Shape of Water from everything I'm hearing now kind of are tending to be the two favorites for best picture oh, really uh okay. with uh, Guillermo del Toro um winning for best director sounding likely um mm-hmm. that's kind of what I've been Hearing and reading about in the last few days, you know, and everything kind of changes, can change at, you know, any point towards the end. But um, highly likely that Gary Oldman will win for, you know, uh, best actor for playing Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour. Um, uh, just because, you know, you know you're, you're an actor and you put on a bunch of makeup to play a, a World War II character, and, you know, that's a lock. um but but he was still he was fantastic it was really
0: really good pretty good he got a little disneyland from time to time like it felt like uh felt like he was really having fun with the role and it's like sometimes sometimes you don't want to see him giggling under the fat suit you just want to (laughs) see like the gravity of the world war ii situation
1: (laughs) yeah the uh i admit that the film was not my top favorite but um but I think you know he's been he's been around um, and such a such a brilliant, talented, uh, and professional actor for so long. Um, I think it's really cool that he's finally getting the. Uh, has he won uh, best actor before? He never has. He's only been nominated once. He was nominated really? nominated for uh, Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy, oh. which he was you know fantastic in as well as he always is. But I think this one is a will be he a deserves long overdue. One. <laughs> he Definitely. really does. Yeah.
0: Well, it's hard for them because he's um he has possibly a proclivity towards uh, genre films and those don't right. usually play as well in the Oscar season but i i loved him in dracula i know that's a contentious one uh, i think he was a lot of fun in uh, fifth element as well of course yeah <laughs> uh but those are the very big um very flamboyant roles but yeah what a what a wonderful actor
1: but yeah i think i think it'll be a lot of fun i mean i will always be uh getting together with everybody to do a, um, Oscar ballot kind of thing. Mm. So that's kind of our tradition is to have the Oscar ballot and see who wins. And it's always the, you know, best animated short, best short, uh, and then, yeah. you know, best, uh, the ones documentary that nobody short. Yeah. Those are always the killers because nobody ever <laughs> sees those and it's just a guess. And sometimes, you know, you get them right. And sometimes you don't, and they're ballot busters.
0: The best animated feature. You've got your money on boss baby, right? Oh my! Oh yeah! I Academy mean, Award nominee Boss Baby.
1: Yeah, I mean that was like I was there midnight showing. You know, I was there and I and then I watched it again like the next day. And then you called
0: the Boss Baby, and they actually picked up.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it was yeah. It, it's hard to find a bigger fan of Boss Baby than than me, <laughs> and I couldn't have been. Happier when I found out that I got an Academy Award nomination too. I mean it just you know so deserving. So deserving.
0: Let's go on to another request from the forum. This comes from Mauricio MM, who says, recently I've been playing Near Automata, and so far I've liked it very much. It's got an incredible storyline, some anime tropes notwithstanding, and interesting characters. I love the design and acting of the machine life forms. But if there's something that really stands out for me among everything this game has to offer is the atmosphere. Part Of it can be credited to its good, so good soundtrack. For example, this soft and melancholic piece that plays on the bunker, the android's safe and monochromatic base of operations, the first in game location that I would qualify as breathtaking.
1: Wow, that sounds like a cool game.
0: Yes, uh, near automata was, um, my game of the year last year. This was a, a huge favorite of mine and a uh, sequel to. A super strange, very niche title called Nier, which um, we talked about in Kane and Rince number 111, if you want to catch up on that one. Uh, but Nier Automata is a super weird, very philosophically interested game written by the very bizarre individual Yokotaro, who tells these heartbreaking stories with really deep, really complex characters. It's a weird one, but it's always constantly kind of unpeeling itself like an onion and showing you new layers you didn't even know were there in the first place. You play as these androids that are being sent down to the planet Earth, which has been taken over by robot life forms as humanity has been whisked away to the moon to try to save whatever was left of them after the uh, machines had essentially taken over. And it's your job to kind of clean up the machine presence and scout out the planet for suitability for humanity to move back or just to support humanity and whatever their next step as a species is. And uh, of course, it doesn't stay (laughs) that simple. Um, But you end up in this space station that is kind of your base of operations Pretty much every time an android dies, their uh, their memories, their their entire like brain signal is sent back to this space station, and it's just reimplanted inside a different android body. And so, you know, the old you is dead for all intents and purposes, but you still have your um, your thoughts and your memories from where you left off. So your life essentially continues on. You spend time in this space station interacting with some of the other characters and it's a good time to learn about the characters in the game based on how they interact with others, based on or what their individual living quarters looks like. And um and yeah, there's a few very dramatic moments in here. Um I, I picked this song out because it reminded me a little bit at the beginning especially of um of Time by Han Zimmer from The Inception mm-hmm. Score. Little bit. Uh, it, it kind of morphs into something else later on, but uh, I, I felt like it had that very cinematic feeling to it. So, anyways, let's listen to Fortress of Lies, composed by Keiichi Okabe from Near Automata. Near Automata, near Automata, who knows, As a strange one, but we like it here on Sound of Play. What an excellent soundtrack. Did I ever play that game? No, you did not. Okay.
1: I like that you can definitively answer that. Well. (laughs) It's just a
0: fact, you know? No, you didn't. You would probably have played it with me, and I know that you didn't, so (laughs) I'm going to take a step out there and say. (laughs) Yeah. All right, this next track is another one of my favorites from 2017. This is a request from the forum from Dingle Dongle, I like that name as well, who says A Hat in Time is one of my favorite platformers of all time. The game wears its inspiration on its sleeve and celebrates them in every aspect. The game has an excellent soundtrack, but I think The Windmill Peak is a beautiful rendition that will remind me of the love and care put into this game. Check it out. Yes, of course. Um, I've talked up A Hat in Time for months now, ever since it came out. It it impressed me immensely from the very beginning. It was one that I had funded on Kickstarter back in probably 2013. I don't know when it was um, fundraising, but it was a very, very long time ago. And I kind of paid half attention to its development status as it was being put into production. Uh, But over the years, I'd kind of, not given up hope on it but i'd kind of like tampered my expectations down a little bit uh, because you know these types of games usually they're very ambitious and they're very hard to get right and so i wasn't uh, i wasn't going to be uh, taken for another ukulele ride again i was uh, i was very pleasantly surprised to find that hat in time uh what it lacked in you know the polish that you would get in a game like super mario odyssey it made up for in just the sheer inventiveness of the entire game. It was absolutely crazy in all of the variety of the levels. There's so much that you're doing. There's so much variety from mission to mission. You'll be doing, you know, one that's just a straight platforming challenge, and then you'll be solving a murder mystery on a train, Orient Express style. Then you'll be leading a parade around town and just all these different stories, all these different characters, different moods. Uh, And of course, a hugely diverse soundtrack to back that up um, with just as much variety as the gameplay had, Uh, composed by the very talented Pascal Michael Steifel, I'm going to guess. This is Windmill Peak. This is a mountaintop level where you're kind of zipping between different mountain peaks and different villages on these mountain peaks, very high above the ground. There's just kind of fog beneath you as far as you can see and you are kind of zip lining across these clotheslines that are strung between these different mountains and so it's very majestic very uh flighty um you know it, it feels very open and it's really this track i think does a good job of representing both the kind of death-defying nature of what you're doing uh, up here in these high mountains is very precarious, it's very dangerous, and also just the, the joyousness, the childlike fun that you're having as this little kid, this hat kid, who is um, going on this grand adventure and isn't maybe even aware of uh, the mortal risk that this all poses just yet. It's a yeah, interesting piece. I really like this a lot. This is Hatton Time Windmill. Ooh. wasn't going to let you off the hook this easily we've made it this far and we've not talked about some of your early film work yet oh good you know i've known you since high school and even before that you were making um making movies and these aren't just like you know cute little videos that you would have shot in your backyard although much of it was filmed in your backyard but these were like actual feature length movies and you would hold like real movie premieres where you would, um, you know, rent out a movie theater or a a hotel conference room um, to show off these films that you had made. And these were, you know, upwards of uh, a couple hours even. And so, you know, you, you came out with um, the, the two that you were, I think most proud of were the uh, Lincoln project and the Knights divide. These were kind of original characters that you had created and um, stories that you developed. Uh, I just watched the the Lincoln project (laughs) again the other night and I was surprised by just how well it continued to hold up, like considering everyone involved was in high school like this is actually like really impressive just the sheer number of like camera angles that you were getting for every shot like it took like actual planning more than most high schoolers would be equipped to do it was a real attention to the the craft of film uh, you composed the soundtrack to both films entirely on uh well not on your own necessarily. I think you had help from uh, one of your uh, buddies. Yeah, the scripting and and the direction and all of this was just you know a group of kids essentially, and it's it's really impressive. I continue to uh, to, to laugh at my my favorite part in the entire movie is when uh, in this kind of spy thriller, uh, globe hopping heist adventure. Uh, going all over the world, you uh, have a scene that's set in England, in London, mm-hmm. and in your establishing shot, you managed to not only get several American flags, because this was filmed in Bellevue, Washington, several American flags, but also cars driving on the right side <laughs> of the road. So uh, great job on that establishing <laughs> shot. A real eye for detail on that one.
1: <laughs> so yeah, well, very uh,
0: American patriotic Brits over there.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, you know, they weren't they weren't uh they weren't your little cute uh you know home movies. They were very uncute uh, you know, home movies. <laughs> just very um,
0: ugly films. Just really yeah.
1: Just just garbage, really. Well, at least I was. Um, I
0: was still going through my acne phase back then and uh you did no favors to me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, hey, at least you got through yours, you know. That's the thing. It's either hits you hard and then leaves, or it just kind of lingers <laughs> with you for the rest of your the rest of your days.
0: <laughs> Speaking of hitting me hard, yeah. <laughs> I got punched in the face during the filming of The Night's Divide. Uh, there was a scene where I was being interrogated by another one of the characters, and uh, it was supposed to be kind of like a mock punch, and I think we got a few takes of him doing that. But then there was one time where... Uh, it wasn't mock enough. Like, I actually did get punched, and I think that's the take we ended up using. So which scene I've was taken that? my my hits.
1: Yeah, Which do you remember which part that was?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was in the uh, underground parking lot. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've earned my IMDb page. That's right. That's you can right. look me up on IMDb. I have three credits, yeah. two of them for Jeff's movies. <laughs> and uh, yeah, very... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, it's a fun little thing to bring up at parties.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's one of those things where I think both of us really hope that that's what we are most known for as we continue to live our lives Definitely is, yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of the thing that we build our identities on. So, yeah, so it's good to make sure that as much as many people
0: know it as possible. So you did the composition work for these as well. What is it, you know, directing movies and composing music, are two very different skill sets. Like, where did you pick up music composition?
1: Well, I mean, I, I started playing piano at a, at a young age, and I was playing piano for years. And, and I think that just sort of flowed naturally into, you know, wanting to score, you know, write film scores and that kind of thing. And, and it was something I really enjoyed. And me and our other buddy, Zach, did a lot with that. You know, it was really fun and it was fascinating and it was cool to be able to create it. And when I, you know, if you go back and listen to it, it's not, it's not that bad. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Um, right. But, you know, it's also one of those things where I just, that wasn't something that uh, was super, I was super passionate about. So it's something that's definitely dropped off that I have, um, you know, zero skill in now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which is why it's such good timing um, that you asked me
0: to be on this podcast. <laughs> yes, perfect. <laughs> uh, I've always wished that I could like write music like that, and I, I could probably plunk something out. But you know, just figuring out how to record that all on the computer and and make like a really internally consistent piece of music, uh, I think it's kind of above what I'm uh, able to do at the moment. But maybe someday.
1: Well, it's I, I'll, I'll tell you this for at least you know working with the the, the projects that we work on now seeing the score go through draft after draft for like this this england short film that we shot last year is um we're getting really close to having that finished and so we've been um had our uh composer from england's been scoring it and he's been sending me draft draft and then he just last week um uh, recorded the real instruments for it and it just it just transforms any everything it just transforms the film to be able to see it set to music and i think it's one of those things where like until and maybe this is maybe this isn't fair, but until you're really digging into it and you see you know a project without the score and then you see the score come in, I feel like it's easy to underestimate how essential a good score is.
2: Hmm.
0: There's been a movement, at least within video games. I'm not sure. I could probably rack my brain and think about the film world as well, mm-hmm. but uh, at least within video games, um, there's been a kind of a resurgence of interest in games that drop. The music and just kind of let you take in the natural sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that dark souls and the legend of Zelda breath of the wild were both very acclaimed for having very minimalist scores. And, you know, you're just kind of hearing the noise that the characters would be hearing the diegetic sound in the environment, uh, the, the birds and the leaves and the wind and the creatures and all of this stuff. That's, you know, um, a very different aspect of it as well as you you said that that score is essential in film. Like where, where do you balance real natural sounds versus having that musical accompaniment?
1: There are definitely have been some, some fascinating projects that take a different approach to music. Um, You know, Cloverfield was very famous for having uh, no score in it whatsoever. The entire, Mm -hmm. you know, the entire film Quentin Tarantino's, all of his early films have no original score. Uh, which is not to say they don't have music, but it's either music that is taking place within the real world of the or the you know the mm-hmm. world of the characters, or it's it's um, you know a, a, a licensed track or something like that that he you know so, you know hand selected for it. Yeah. And so you know, there's there's a lot of projects that do that uh, that do a very interesting twist on it, and I think it's it's not so much that uh, you know a project is that it's a failure or it's a, it's a problem to not have a score that a score is like essential to the success of a project. Mm -hmm. But if the set, if it's built that way and it's designed that way, it just, it takes on a whole nother life because then there's other times where there's, it's the contrast of things can, when you expect to hear a score that um, and there is no score that can hold in even, even more tension and even more interest. Um, One of my favorites is a movie called margin call um with Mm. kevin spacey uh sorry but uh in (laughs) probably not the first name i should have mentioned um but like stanley tucci and um a bunch of other guys it's about the 2008 financial collapse um Mm. and it's uh at the very end of the credits instead of having music there's just the sound of um shoveling which just plays in to the to the end of it um it just and so it's just the sound of just you know digging a hole in the backyard shoveling that kind of thing and there's no music and it just plays through there and it's just got this bizarre sort of feel to it where you expect to hear music there and there's not and it just keeps you it keeps you engaged
0: now before you made the Lincoln Project and the nights divide you dabbled in uh creating movies that were uh, not your own intellectual properties you made a at least one fan film where you played james bond
1: yeah 14 years old 13 and 14 i think
0: yeah yeah. N- yeah this one was called uh live once for everything is that what it was that's right
1: that's yes. right yeah and i think there was a, the, the, a shorter one that was uh nothing Lives forever um, <laughs> which was you know we well we were you know we were obviously very creative with the titles yeah and, right And they had a lot to do with the plot, you know,
0: speaking of creativity and naming my favorite, favorite, favorite thing about, (laughs) about, uh, um, your, your bond movie is that your villain, (laughs) your villain, you gave the name Benicio del Toro, not knowing that was the name of an actor.
1: (laughs) who was himself actually in a bond movie at one point <laughs> which is even even better yeah it's true i think um i don't i don't remember when we we like made that connection but i think it, i mean it just had to have been one of those things where i saw it in the bond movie um i think it was license to kill that he was in but and i think uh-huh. you know you just saw it in there and it just kind of lodges in your memory and then you're like oh you know it'd be a badass name is benicio del toro and so then you know you know you don't do any research on it whatsoever and you just go right into it and you shoot it all and then you get out and you're like oh whoops
0: uh you're breaking into benicio del toro's (laughs) home oh boy that movie is a delight I like to throw that on every once in a while. It really cheers me up.
1: It does. It it makes you feel good about yourself. You're like, you look at that and you're like, oh, at least I wasn't doing that at 14.
0: (laughs) At least I was just jumping off of skateboards onto my head like everyone else. That's right. Yeah. Speaking of James Bond, you're bringing us a piece of music from a James Bond video game.
1: This was the video game that when we were growing up around that time was like the biggest thing us was agent under fire
0: we're not as cool as those golden eye kids but oh, you
1: know. i know i know i wish we were that cool my older cousins were that cool but i wasn't i guess i wasn't old enough
0: <laughs> i like agent under fire i know that uh, agent under fire and the night fire are the right. two there might have been more ps2 james bond games but those are like the two main ones the ones that people really think back to like those were the duology of uh, right. that series of games created by Electronic Arts.
1: Yeah, then there was uh, Everything or Nothing was a third one, but that was like the, like oh, okay. it went, it went third-person shooter, like that kind oh, of I thing. Oh, I see, yeah.
0: Nightfire felt like it kind of jumped the shark a little bit, at least in my opinion. Like <laughs> yeah, it definitely. got a little bit more, I don't remember, there were jetpacks and RC cars and it was all very like high technology as opposed to Agent Agent Under Fire, which is a little bit more kind of grounded in its technology right. and, and uh, kind of made the, Matches feel a little bit more kind of traditional first person shootery,
1: yeah, absolutely, yeah. And and I think you know, Nightfire went to space, and you know, but (laughs) you know, that's you don't get you don't jump the shark much more than than that in uh in Bond films, I guess. But yeah, I think with Age Under Fire, there was something about it that I, I don't know that I've never quite been able to put my finger on for why I think all of us preferred it to Nightfire. There's just something about way the game felt it felt sharper i guess yeah uh sharper a little bit less I, I don't know how to like say but it just felt a little bit less sort of rounded off like like okay, uh, yeah i, I, know I don't know if mean. that makes any sense
0: right i feel like Nightfire was aiming a lot higher and it kind of like was a uh, jack of all trades and master of none whereas agent under fire was a little bit more concentrated and it actually like really mastered the few things that it wanted to do
1: yeah i think that that sounds right. I I don't know for some reason I'm comparing it in my head to like uh like I always used to like like cars in the eighties because they had like uh like uh sharper edges sharper lines to it. And it really mm. felt like they were making a statement as to it. Whereas a lot of nineties yeah. cars, you know, had like uh like you know the the nineties mustangs and the nineties tauruses and whatnot, which just just the worst because you know they're all just sort of like smooth off rounded edges and they all look the same. That kind of thing. That's more of what I nightfire felt a little bit more generic. To me,
0: a little bit more '90s. A little bit more '90s, yeah. James Bond watching Full House in between missions—it kind of <laughs> takes away from the atmosphere.
1: Yeah, yeah. The part of the '90s that we don't want to go back to.
0: I remember playing Agent Under Fire's multiplayer and just spending time like messing around, not necessarily trying to shoot each other. But uh, there was one level that was set in like a wine cellar and oh, you yeah. could uh like i think it would be very difficult to trigger organically in the course of a match but you could actually like kill somebody with the wine press but it was really slow and it was really difficult to like catch <laughs> them in this wine barrel so um, it was something you would pretty much have to do intentionally
1: <laughs> yeah there was a, those were a lot, there was a lot of fun times in the multiplayer i think that's a, mm, that's a lot yeah. of where you know where the fun really came from with that is it was just a, it was just a blast to play and i think we would play I think it might have been that same wine cellar map. It's a little hard to remember, but uh, we just play like all rockets. Like everybody would just have rockets and that was (laughs) it. And you're just constantly dying because it's all so, you know, tight, (laughs) such tight quarters and it's friendly fires on and the whole thing.
0: (laughs) Uh, So this piece of music, we don't know who composed this arrangement, but it's... um... It's incorporating a lot of the traditional James Bond music, but it's it's a lot more upbeat than I typically associate James Bond music with. So, why don't you talk about this piece of music, uh, which is called uh, "Streets of Bucharest," and uh, just talk about what it and it means to you,
1: what <laughs> <laughs> how how it touched me, um, yeah, right. on a sp- emotional and spiritual level. Show me on um, this
0: emotional doll where this really touched you.
1: <laughs> you know, I think part of it is that this was um, one of one of my favorite levels. Uh, with this was where you actually get to drive um, like the uh, the old DB5 uh, Aston Martin from from like Goldfinger mm-hmm. and Thunderball and whatnot, and and it was just a really fun laid out. Uh, the map was really laid out well, and you had a lot of freedom to uh, move around and take your own routes and that kind of thing, as as opposed to. Nightfire, as an example, the driving stuff is very much like there are not it's it's one track and you follow the one the one route and there's no not really a multiple choice option for how to get to the final destination. And just the uh, the real the gameplay of it, I, I really liked it was really um, sort of tight, which I I I really enjoyed. Um, and also just back then, I was just, you know, I was obsessed with, you know, the James Bond theme and all the different ways to, uh, you know, the, all the the different renditions of it and with this one was one of my favorites uh renditions of it back in the day um and i love playing this map because uh the music was freaking dope um and so it was just really fun to play the map because it was a fun match to begin with but also uh you know because you get to listen to this uh this sick uh rendition of the james bond theme
0: well this is streets of bucharest from james bond 007 agent under fire We have one track left to play but before we play that we would like to remind everyone to go over to our forum at kane forum or get in touch with us on twitter at kane where you can request your um, your favorite pieces of video game music and we will play those on a future sound of play please do subscribe to kane and Rince as well where we talk about video games very in depth every sunday every monday now excuse me we changed that monday mornings bright and early Anyways, I've been Ryan Heyman and I would like to thank my buddy, Jeff Prawl. Do you have anything that you would like to direct our listeners attention to, uh, things that you have produced filmically or Instagram or Twitter or just whatever? I don't know. Do you, do you crave public attention?
1: I, I do. A lot of my, uh, a lot of my self-worth depends on it. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah not much so has
0: changed since high school.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So uh follow me on instagram at jeff Prawl. um you know I'm on twitter but i probably, i wouldn't recommend following me. that's probably a waste of a of a follow um but yeah, yeah uh, just follow me on instagram and um you know not, not the stuff that we've got that I'm really excited about is uh hopefully coming out later this year no no update yet the best place to see updates on that would be uh my instagram okay, cool, but thanks for having me on this is a, this is last
0: yeah of course, thank you very much for uh for joining in. It's been a pleasure talking to you as always. As always, you know, I've, uh, I've taken vacations down in LA with you and you spend, uh, quite a few of your, your days off coming up this way. Cause your, uh, your family is up here as well. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we can, we can persuade you a lot easier to get up this way. That's and true. so it's, it's always fun to hang out when we have the opportunity. And when we do, we always like to sit down with a little bit of Donkey Kong country or uh, star Wars battlefront,
2: and the PlayStation
0: right. 2, the, the proper Star Wars Battlefront, not this newfangled <laughs> EA. I don't know. They might have produced that old one as well. But anyways, the, the, the old ones, the, the classic Star That's Wars right. Battlefront 1. The last track that we're going to play today comes from Undertale, one of our most requested and most played soundtracks in total. Also Kaneon Rince issue 256 if you're interested in the game itself. This is a song called Spider Dance. and this was composed by Toby Fox. It was composed for a boss battle against a a, a Kickstarter backer designed boss. And I really like this piece of music because um, throughout the entire Undertale soundtrack, it does a really good like mixture of the kind of classic NES 8bit style sound uh with a lot more not natural sounding instruments but like synthesized instruments that wouldn't fit in that same kind of 8-bit style and i feel like it it contrasts them really well and it uses them to bounce off of each other and really like build each other up in really interesting ways this piece of music i think does it really well it spends a lot of time in kind of setting expectations and then when it kicks into overdrive with its uh chorus or its uh you know bridges and second verses and all you feel that kick so much harder because it's so much more than you are expecting it to be. Um, The tune itself is pretty simple and it's a motif that comes up throughout the game. Um, I'd say compositionally, it's nothing super special, but I just really like the way that it is recorded and the way that the instruments layer onto each other. And uh, listeners of Sound of Play for a long time will know that that is um, some some of my favorite things. So let's listen to Spider Dance by Toby Fox and we will catch you next week with a special uh, produced by Darren Gargett, actually. He he uh, went renegade and decided to create his own sound play in preparation for the release of Sea of Thieves doing a rare retrospective. And we know that uh, between he and I, <laughs> We are the big like rare fanboys on the on the team, and so there's no one better qualified to speak about Rare's musical history than Mr. Gargett. So look forward to that. I'll catch you in a couple more shows. See ya.